to make myself more aware of really what he stood for and his impact he had on our nation. And so this last week, I searched through some of his speeches and searched through some of his letters, and I came across a speech that I had never heard before. If I had heard it, it was unfamiliar to me. And it was a speech that he made in April, as a matter of fact, April the 4th, 1967, which was exactly a year to the day before he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and knowing that, knowing what was going to happen a year to the day after he gave this speech, made the speech even more poignant, even more powerful. It was a speech that he gave to religious leaders, to clergymen, and to Christian lay people at the Riverside Baptist Church or Riverside Church in New York City. And this speech became one of his most controversial speeches because in it, for the very first time, Dr. King addressed the issue of what he was marching for, for racial reconciliation, for equal rights. And he, he linked that with the protests that were going on in the anti-war movement with Vietnam. And he called the speech Beyond Vietnam. And it was controversial because he was challenging the people that were listening to him to make the most of the opportunities they had been given to move beyond their normal complaints. He, he said later that his goal in writing this speech was to get both groups of people, those who were in opposition to the war and those who were fighting for equal rights, to come together and rise above and move beyond just talking about those issues, but make the most of the opportunity they had, the energy they had, to begin to address more of society's ills, more of the things that were tearing up our culture. And it's a powerful, powerful speech. And whether you believe in his politics or you, you follow him politically, it was an incredible speech that has a lasting impression. And it's a speech that I've taken the title from my message this morning from the context. And so I wanted to, wanted to read you a part of that speech. He said, We are now faced with the facts, my friends, that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. And in this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with lost opportunity. We may cry out desperately for time to pause or passage, but time is adamant to every plea and rushes on. For over the bleached bones and jumbled residues of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. For there is an invisible book of life that will faithfully record either our vigilance or our neglect. Now as I read that speech, those two words that he leaves there, the idea of too late just continued to sit in my spirit and soul all week. It was one of those things that even though I knew what I was going to preach on this morning, this tied together perfectly with it because I thought, as he said, over the bleached, boned, and jubbled residues of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words too late, I thought it would be perfect to fit in there over the scattered ashes of the church through the ages. It would be fitting to write on many of those churches' tombs too late. And as I thought about my own life and I thought about the people that I had encountered, I thought about the people throughout my life that came in and out of my life, I wonder how many of those people, my life, touching them would be too late. 
How many people have I made contact with over the years that, that I'll never see again, that I'll never talk to again, that I will never have an opportunity to be an influence on their life? Students, parents, people in church, people I grew up with, family members, friends, that those words of Dr. King would ring in my life too late. There was a philosopher poet who wrote this, Time is a thief that has robbed me of everything that ever had meaning in my life. Time took my parents, time took my loved ones, time took my friends, time stole opportunities from me, time denied me of privilege, and even now, time robs me of my memory. Time, 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 such a thief. At the end of the poem, he closes with these words, but then again, was it time who was the thief? Or was it I who failed to make use of the time that I had been given? That made it a thief. Too late. The book of Job says this about us. For man is born of a woman and is of a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and he withers away like a fleeting shadow. He does not endure. Job is saying our life is like a blinking, flashing sparkle in the night that comes and goes quickly. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what tomorrow may bring forth. Both of those passages I read from James 4 and Romans 13 warn us of the fleeting passing of time and compel us, as he said in Romans, get up, wake up, realize that time is passing you by. Realize that opportunities that are coming into your life will be passed before you ever realize it. Ephesians 5.15 says, be careful how you live, not as the unwise, but as the wise, making the most of every opportunity. My fear as a pastor is that the church and many Christians today have lost our fierce urgency of now when it comes to our mission, when it comes to sharing the gospel, the good news of forgiveness and grace and salvation and redemption to those around us. For many of those in our lives, people we call family and co-workers and friends and neighbors, it might be too late. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when I challenged you with making New Year's resolutions, and we talked about why Christianity is dangerous, I I challenged you that there are really only two resolutions that matter in your life in 2018. There are only really two goals that will make a difference in your life in 2018. And they were the things that Paul talked about when he shared with us in 1 Corinthians 10. And he said, follow me as I follow Jesus' example. And he laid out what those two principles, those two goals were. And there's something that is obvious to us in the church because we talk about it all the time. But I want you to hear it from Paul's own words again. He said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of Christ. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. And he says, why do I do that? So that many may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So what are those two things that made Paul dangerous? What are those two things that in the hands of a Christ follower make us dangerous? Making the goal of our life to give glory to God in everything that we do. It's what he started out with. He said, whatever I do, whether I'm eating or drinking or reading or talking or speaking or at school or at work, everything I do, I want to glorify God. And so I asked you a couple of weeks ago to look at your life and ask yourself, is everything that I say, everything that I watch, everything that I do, everything that I allow into my life, does it glorify God? 
We've used another phrase to describe that. We call it exalting the king. We've said one of the purposes of the church is to worship God, exalt the king. But then right after that, he said the second purpose was I do all of this, everything. I glorify God and everything I'm doing in my life, I want the goal of my life to be that people will come to know Jesus Christ. He said, why am I doing this? So that people might be saved. And for us, what makes us dangerous is when we set aside the goal of our lives to glorify God in everything we do and then also to weigh everything we do within the bounds of recognizing that I want everything that I do to have the end result be that people come to know Jesus Christ. Now, if we call glorifying God, exalt the king, we've called making purpose of trying to help people get saved, extending the kingdom. See, what I'm afraid in the church today is we've lost our passion, and our urgency for extending the kingdom. See, we do a real good job of exalting the king. We come together at church and and we sing and we worship and we make it a priority to glorify God. But many times we do it at the expense of extending the kingdom. See, I worry that today's church is more concerned with its own survival than advancing the kingdom of God. We're more concerned with what is happening to us instead of what is happening outside. And we've got Christ followers who are more interested in themselves than reaching others. It seems to me today that there is very little spiritual fishing going on. Now don't get me wrong, we'll take a fish if it jumps into the boat and it happens to be the same color and like the same things we like, we probably won't throw it away. But what happened to the Christians that made it a purpose of their life to get in the boat and go out and fish? We've lost our sense of urgency. And I fear that What's happened is we've bought into a couple of faulty assumptions, a couple of faulty lies that the devil has whispered into our ear that has caused us to become complacent at best and apathetic at worst. And if we don't do something about it, if the church doesn't open its eyes, if the church doesn't turn things around and be about the business that God's called us to, we might as well write Ichabod on the door. If our goal is to run out the clock and to pass the ball around and hope that no one scores, then we've lost sight of who Jesus Christ called us to be. See, we bought into these false assumptions, these rationalizations that we tell ourselves in our mind are excuses for why we are not fishing, why we are not sharing our faith, why we are not telling other people about Jesus Christ, why we don't make it the goal of our life that everything we do would have the end result of leading people to Jesus. We have falsely believed and assumed that those around us already know. Tell ourselves, I don't have to tell anybody because all the people I know in my life are Christian. Everybody that I encounter are Christian. Surely they've already heard. We live in the Bible Belt, right? There's churches on every corner. We're we're churched out. So surely everyone that we know has already heard. But recent statistics tell us that there are 180 to 190 million Americans that do not know Jesus Christ. And those are your friends, and those are your neighbors, and those are your teammates, and those are your co-workers, and those are your family members. Oh, they may know stories. They may have heard phrases, but they don't know Jesus. We assume that they've already heard the second false assumption that we buy into. is We assume that someone else will tell them if I don't. Surely they've got another Christian friend. If if I don't step up and tell them, if I don't make it a priority in my life to share Jesus with them, somebody else is going to come along because, you know, this is a church area and, and everyone here, you know, knows something about Jesus. And so someone will come along. Surely they have Christian friends. 
So what we say in doing that is we are leaving our friends and our family and our loved ones hope and salvation in somebody else's hands. You're willing to leave the eternal security of your loved ones and family and friends in somebody else's hand, hoping that they're going to be the one to tell them? God puts somebody on your heart. If God brings somebody on your path, it's for a reason and a purpose. When God lays someone on your heart to pray for and to begin to talk to, it's for a purpose. When God brings people into your life day in and day out, it is for a purpose. And I'm afraid what we're going to hear when we get to heaven is many conversations are going to start with a phrase, I thought you were going to tell them. Because we've bought into the false assumption that somebody else is going to do it. We believe that they already know or somebody else is going to tell them. And then the worst false assumption of all is there'll be more time. We convince ourselves, we tell ourselves that I'll have another chance. Right now is just not right. Right now is awkward or, or, or maybe it, it won't, it'll be less pressure. There'll be another time down the road that I'll be able to share. And, and we always convince ourselves People are watching. I'll wait till a time when people aren't watching or I'll wait till a better time. The only problem is better times are never promised and later is never promised. I want you to think about this. How many people in your life that you've had contact with will you never see again? It's never too soon to share Jesus Christ, but it can be too late. It's time for the church to regain our urgency. It's time for us to open our eyes and realize that time is not promised. Tomorrow is not promised. And you and I have the hope of the world in our hands. Even the disciples had to be reminded of it. The disciples had lost focus of what was important. And Jesus has to remind them in the passage that I've listed for you in John 4. Many of you know the story. It's the story of the, the Samaritan woman. Jesus and his disciples are traveling and they decide to go through Samaria, which was a no-no to most people. Most people avoided Samaria, but Jesus had a purpose. And so he decides to cut through Samaria. And as they are coming across Samaria, they come to this well. And there's a woman there. And the Bible tells us that Jesus stops and sits down and begins to engage this woman. And the disciples go on. His disciples had another issue. They were hungry. They'd been traveling. And so they go to get food and Jesus stops and talks to this woman. And he moves her through the processes of sharing. He, he moves it from encounter to engaging to evangelism. He begins to talk to her. Are you thirsty? I can give you water that will make you thirst no more. Living water. He, he talked about worship. You worship this way. We worship this way. But listen, there's a new way to worship that's beyond both ways. And she is blown away. And then he shares with her the hope that is in him. And she comes to know Christ. And she's excited about it. And in the midst of this, the disciples come back. They come trudging back. They've got their baby back ribs from Chili's or whatever it is. That they're, you know, they're, they've got the food. And that's all they're focused on. And you can hear it in the story. And so I want to read to you. Listen, I'm going to start in verse 27 of chapter 4. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what did she want or what are you talking with her about? Then the woman, leaving her water jar, went back to town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of town and made their way to him. See, she moved from a place of having an encounter with God to being engaged with God to being evangelized and then being empowered. And I'm going to talk about that next week. Next week, I'm going to talk about the practical ways that we can share. But that does nothing if we don't get our mind wrapped around the idea of the urgency of Christ. She's excited. She leaves. And the disciples just come bumbling back. Have we got our food? Who's this woman? Why is he talking to her? You know, and they sit down and, and look what they say. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, teacher, come eat something. 
Say, hey, aren't you going to eat? You've been sitting here. We went and got the food. Come and eat, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And so this, I want you to see what the disciples say because, you know, the Bible's funny. And many times when we think the disciples are super spiritual or super, they were us. They were just like us. Jesus comes out with something very profound and says, listen, I have food to eat, which he's saying, I have business that has nothing to do with eating. And so what do the disciples say? They looked at each other and said, could somebody have brought him food? And so Jesus preaches to them about what they just missed out on. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ripe for harvest now. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may glad together. Thus the saying, one season another reaps is true. For I have sent you to reap what you have not worked. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. What, what's he saying? They didn't even see the woman. They didn't even see it as an opportunity to share. Their whole purpose was to go throughout the land and share the hope that they had in Jesus Christ. They come across this woman, and they don't see her because she's a woman. They don't see her because she's Samaritan. And they don't see her because they're hungry. And because they were so focused on what they wanted and where they were going, they missed an incredible opportunity because it wasn't just about this woman hearing Jesus. This woman hears Jesus. She goes to town and brings the whole town back. There is a whole town that hears about Jesus because Jesus knew the urgency of now. Jesus knew, I'm not going to have an opportunity to meet this woman again at this well, just like I do now. So I can't pass it up. Doesn't matter if I'm hungry. Doesn't matter if it's cold. Doesn't matter if it's awkward. Right now is what's important. Jesus tells us in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus said, my goal, my job is to go out and seek, to go find those who are lost. And not just find them, save them. And then when he was leaving the earth in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he passes that task off to you and I. Jesus says, my job is to seek and save the lost, but I am leaving. And here's what he says. Once I go, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness. I'm turning it over to you, church. Your job, seek and save that which is lost. There's no other plan. There's no plan B. There's no, if that doesn't work out, he's going to come up with something else. When you look around this room, you recognize that you and I are it. But we stand on the shoulders of people before us that took from 12 men, 11 men that took the gospel of Jesus Christ and in 2,000 years penetrated every corner of the earth. Why? Because they recognized the sense of urgency. And you and I have got to have that same sense of urgency. We've got to open our eyes. If we really believe, please hear me, church, if we really believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if we really believe that, if we really believe that the wages for that sin, that payment for that sin is death, both spiritual and physical, and if we really believe that the only way to pay off that debt is through Jesus Christ, is through accepting Him and receiving His gift of salvation and forgiveness and redemption that He freely offers anyone who comes to Him, if we believe that, we believe that people are sinners and they're lost, and they're separated from God. And Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. And if we really believe that there is something after this life, 
If we really believe in eternity, and we believe that those who do not receive that free gift of salvation from Jesus Christ will one day die and be separated for eternity from God in hell, what are we waiting for? See, if we believe that stuff, if we believe that to be true in our hearts, we would be compelled, we would be pushed to go tell our worst enemy about that truth. Much less those who we claim to love much less those who we claim to care about. Let me ask you, church, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? Because you see, the real issue is not urgency. Because we don't have an urgency problem. We, we are all urgent. Our issue is what we're urgent about. See, we're real urgent about sharing the latest gossip, aren't we? We're real urgent about sharing things that our kids do or our grandkids do, don't we? That's urgent. That's important to us. We're real urgent about calling and telling other people about a TV show or a movie or a website or a sports store or or a political article. See, we're real urgent about those things. And when we're important to us and when that's excited, we will call up our friends out of the blue. We will interrupt strangers. We will be awkward in public, won't we? Let me tell you what my kid did. Let me tell you what my grandkid did. Did you see that movie? It doesn't matter how embarrassed we may feel. It doesn't matter what other people think. If that's important to us, then we blow through all that stuff with a sense of urgency. But what about the one thing that's supposed to be the most important thing in our lives? Something that has real life and death consequences. Why are we so hesitant? Why are you waiting? Let me ask you to think about this. If you knew you were going to see somebody, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, acquaintance, if you knew that you would only see them or you would only speak to them ten more times in your life, if you knew, if I could tell you today, you were only going to see them or speak to them ten more times, what would you want them to know? What would you want to tell them? What impression would you want to leave? What is so urgent and important? If you knew this was only one of the last times I would talk to them, they have got to hear this. What would you share with them? What if it's only five times? Would it grow more urgent? What if I don't told you you'd only talk to them one more time? You would only see that person in your life one more time for the rest of your life. What would you say? You see, the Bible has been warning us that we're not promised ten more times or five more times. We're not even promised one more time. Matter of fact, for the most of the people that we have encountered in our lives, up until now, you'll never see again and you'll never talk to again. Those people you went to high school with and junior high with and grew up next to and worked with at your first job and your second job. Those people who you had kids together with and went to ball games and and, and activities outside. Those people that you were in church with. For most of us, many of those people form a huge group that we will never talk to and we will never see again in our lives. What will we wish we have said? If not you, then who? If not now, then when? Let me ask you to think about it this way. Suppose you knew somebody that had a horrible, painful, life-threatening disease. And you had the cure. You had the cure. Would you hesitate to give it to them? You say, well, I'll wait and find a better time. It's kind of awkward. I don't want to interrupt them. I don't want to make a big scene. Maybe somebody else will give it to them. 
Maybe somebody else will tell them about it. Maybe, hey, maybe they already know, so I'm not going to say anything. I would hope not. What happens is if we knew somebody was in pain and, and had struggling and had a disease that could take away their life and we had a cure, most of us would do everything we can to rush to get that cure to them, to call them, to tell them, listen, I, I hear there's a hope and, and there's a way that you can be healed. So why are we so hesitant with something that not only affects their eternal life, but affects their life today with something that could radically transform their life. Why are we so silent when we have something that could save their marriage, could help them with their kids or their grandkids, could bring them peace and hope and a purpose, could bring them unconditional love? Why are we so silent when we have something that could help remove worry and stress and suffering and pain? What's our excuse? Now I know what most of you are thinking. Because it's our go-to every time we hear a preacher talk about evangelism. It's one of those things we tell ourselves to rationalize, to make ourselves feel good. And it sounds something like this. Pastor, you're exactly right. That's why I live my life the way I do. So that my life can be an example to everyone around me. And that's true. Our lives should reflect what we believe. And, and the way we live our lives is a great way to build a foundation. It's a great way to open a door. But living your life the way Christ has called you to is not enough. It's not enough. This is what Paul says in Romans. How can they know? How can they call on the one they have not believed? How can they believe in the one they have not heard about? How can they hear when someone is not preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. There comes a place where living your life is not enough. You have got to back it up with your words. You have got to be able to tell them why you live the way that you live. How will they hear unless someone what? Speaks. It doesn't say how will they live unless someone lives. How will they know unless someone examples it in front of them? No, it says how will they know unless you or I open our mouths and share the hope that we have. Paul goes on in verse 17. He says, faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the word of God. How are people saved? They're saved by hearing the truth of the word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to them. Now your lifestyle may back up and may, may add an exclamation point to what you say, but unless you say something, it means nothing. There was a Christian man who gave his testimony. He grew up in Nazi Germany. He was a teenager during the Nazi years of World War II, and he said that everyone in his town knew what was happening to the Jews. He knew what was happening. Some loaded up, some shipped off. But they felt like since they couldn't really do anything, it was best if they just kept to themselves. Since they, they really weren't going to be able to change anything, so they remained silent. And he tells the story that in his town there, next to his small church, a railroad track ran behind the church. And he said every Sunday morning you could hear the whistle in the distance of the train. And he said it never failed that during the service that train would blow by that church. And if you've ever been someplace, lived in a house, or been in a building where a train is going by, it's pretty obvious the train's going by. And he said over time they began to hear the train go by and they began to recognize noises coming from the train that they recognized were the people on the train, the Jewish people and the outcast people, that were being transported to the concentration camps. And he said they were like cattle in these cars and you could hear them crying. 
And he said over time it came to be where they, they didn't want to hear the whistle. Week after week the whistle would blow and, and they were so distressed with hearing the whistle. It would haunt them in their sleep. They would hear the cries of the Jews as they gathered in church. So you know what they did? They decided since they could recognize when the whistle blew that it was a certain amount of time before the train came next to the church that when they heard the whistle blow, they would stand and begin to sing their hymns. Because they reasoned that if they sang loud enough, then they wouldn't be able to hear the cries of those on the trains. And the young man said there were times that they would be singing at the top of their lungs and you could still hear the cries and and the shrieks and the screams of the people headed on their way to death. And so they would sing even louder and they would play the music louder in hopes that they would not be able to pay attention to it. And later on in his life, he said, 75 years later, he still hears the haunting cry of that whistle. And he said, I... If there's ever anything I could do in my life, I pray that God forgives those of us who claim to be Christians and turned our eyes from such devastation. Church, hear me this morning. You and I are surrounded by people. We're in contact with people every day whose lives and futures are very similar to those who are trapped in those train cars. They are walking by us every day headed to death coming in and out of our lives every day headed for death. And the question for you and I this morning, as we have the one thing that can save them, as we have the one thing that can set them free, will we continue to just sing a little louder or will we recognize the fierce urgency of now? Jesus says in Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he asked his disciples, For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out more workers, to send those out into the harvest fields. So I ask you this morning, church, if not you, who? And if not now, when? Lord, open our eyes. Lord, give us a sense of urgency. Time does not stand still. Let's pray.